الجزيرة بودكاست You could call it a photo that sparked an uprising. In Iran's Kasra Hospital in Tehran, a 22-year-old woman is lying in a coma. In the hallway, her parents embrace, already grieving the death of their daughter, Masa Amini. Her name is Mahsa Amini, and she was just 22. The photo was taken by journalist Nilofar Hamadi. It became one of the first ways the world learned of Amini's death in the custody of Iran's morality police. Masa Amini was arrested by the morality police for not properly covering her hair, and then she died in their custody. These demonstrations driven by the death of 22-year-old Mahsa Amini. Amini died on September 16th. Protests began soon after. Within the week, Nilofar Hamadi was arrested herself. Then, a week later, another journalist, Elahe Mohammadi, was arrested too, for reporting on Amini's funeral. Now it's been more than 250 days since the two women were first imprisoned. And last week, their trials finally began behind closed doors. Ten years right now, as it stands, they could be put behind bars if they're found guilty. So what will happen to these journalists whose reporting helped spark an uprising? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Today, I'm speaking with Al Jazeera's Tehran correspondent, Dorsa Jabari, who's been reporting on the trials. Dorsa, where am I catching you today? I am in our bureau in the capital. It is the weekend, but still very much busy, as I'm sure you can hear in the background, on the streets of Tehran. We are in the newsroom, part of our bureau. So we're talking today about two reporters on trial for their coverage of the death of Masa Amini, a death in police custody that sparked an uprising against the Iranian government last year. What can you tell me about these two journalists and the outlets they worked for? Well, uh, the first journalist who was arrested was Nilufar Hamidi. Nilufar is a photographer. Nilufar Hamidi, one of the journalists, gained access to the Tehran hospital. The moment Amini's parents learned that she had passed away, they embraced as they consoled one another. Hamidi managed to take a picture of that. She tweeted it. And then the story basically went viral um, after that. And she was arrested a few days later. Now, Nilufar works for a daily newspaper here, a pro-reformist newspaper uh, called Sharq. And it's one of the main newspapers inside the country. Uh, she's one of their youngest reporters. She usually covers a lot of sporting um, events and um, a lot of cultural events. This was just an assignment for her, and she just happened to be in that hospital, taking the photo according to her editor, um, who assigned her. Nilufar has been behind bars for over 255 days now, and her court date took place um, at the end of May. And that's when uh, people saw her for the first time uh, when she was in court. The other journalist who was arrested is um, Elahe Mohammadi, who also works for one of the local um, papers, Hamihan, 
uh, it's called. Now, Elohe usually covers a lot of cultural issues and stories. She doesn't cover politics or hard news, according to her editor. And she's also a relatively newcomer to the newspaper. She's been working there for about eight months uh, when she was arrested. And she comes from a small town outside of the capital. And uh, when I spoke to her editor, he said that she was a very optimistic person, very outgoing. She's very well liked by her colleagues. She also has a twin sister who, interestingly, also is a reporter at the same newspaper at Hamihan, who I spoke to recently. Hmm. So let's break down what each of them did. Nilafar took the picture. Can you describe the picture for us? Yes, it's a picture in the hallways of the hospital where Mahsa was, and it's two people hugging each other. You see a man and a woman hugging each other. You can't see their faces up close. It's quite a distant shot. And it was a quite a moving picture without it really revealing anything. Now, that's what Nilufar did. That was her assignment that she got. Elahe was actually sent to Mahsa's hometown for her burial ceremony for her funeral in Sakas in West Kurdistan region. And um, her editor sent her there to cover the funeral like any other assignment would be. Elahe was there at the funeral. And if you recall, there was clashes between um, the people that were there attending the funeral, chanting slogans against the government, and there was also security forces as well. A very heavy security uh, presence at her funeral. And Elahe returned to Tehran, and she was arrested on the 29th of September. Most of their time has been at Evin Prison. Evin Prison in Tehran holds many political prisoners. So what exactly are they being charged with? Well, the first thing is cooperating with the hostile government of the United States. According to Elaha's editor, the judiciary hadn't presented all the evidence. And even the first court appearance that has come and gone, we don't know the details of what transpired because it was held behind closed doors. And this is Nilufar's editor-in-chief, Mahdi Rahmanian. The main problem in Iran is that the authorities make decisions arbitrarily. When a journalist reports on an issue not in line with the officials, they come after you. Media is the first target of the authorities when the reporting is not what they want. So the first charge is cooperating with the hostile government of the U.S., then acting against national security and spreading propaganda against the establishment. The position has been that Massa's case, according to the intelligence ministry and the judiciary, is something that was pre-planned by hostile powers to try and incite riots in the country, to try and overthrow the system. Now, these two women are being looked at um, having pivotal roles in sharing the information that feeds into that narrative. And that is why these charges have been brought against them. And if convicted, they each face a maximum of 10 years in prison. Now, 10 years could also be added on top of that down the line. Do we know how many other people have been charged with similar crimes? Well, according to the Committee to Protect Journalists, since Massa Amini's death, there have been nearly 100 journalists arrested in Iran. And that is one of the highest numbers Iran has had in the past 30 years. And it is now the top jailer of journalists in the world. 
overall this past year. And that's not even until January. Now, the countries that follow in terms of the number of reporters that are arrested annually is after Iran, it's China and Myanmar. So Dorsey, you mentioned you spoke to Elahe's twin sister. You've also spoken to Nilofar's family and colleagues. How are people coping? What are those conversations been like? I think I was not prepared to speak to Elahe's sister. It happened by accident. I was there to interview her editor and her sister was there. Her sister also has a case outstanding against her, but not as severe as what Ella is facing. So she's hesitant to speak on camera. But they are all very hopeful that these two women will be exonerated. They'll be found not guilty. And they're all very angry and worried. Then I think their families also have suffered tremendously. Nilufar's husband, for example, is also a journalist. He was working for a government news agency. He was let go a few months ago without any notice or reason. He was just fired. So you went to Elahi's office and presumably you saw her desk. What did her desk look like? How are her colleagues feeling? Walk me through it. Her desk is just as she left it. These two women are now on front pages of newspapers and they have been over the past eight months. So the the paper headlines are posted on the wall. They've put them up on the wall. They also have a special door that is dedicated to people's messages to Elahe. So people have written various different messages, notes of support. And there's also a, a countdown, those ticks that you do in prison, basically keeping track of how long these women have been behind bars. At Shah newspaper, there was also the same thing. And there, both editors believe that these two women will be hopefully back at their desks soon. Mm. Um, and when you were speaking to Elahe's sister, she got a phone call, right? Yes. Elahe's sister, Elnaz, was on the phone when we were filming. And she told me that she was on the phone with her sister in prison. Her sister calls her every night. And... Um, I asked her if she had any message or anything like that. She said she preferred not to share those kinds of things at the moment, given the sensitivity around her case, Um, but that she was in good spirits. She was fully aware of all the events that have taken place in Iran since her arrest, because you have to remember, she hasn't been outside on the streets of Tehran since September, and it's very different to what it was like then. Women are not covered as much anymore. There is a sense of um, a lack of fear on the parts of women who feel they have a voice that is stronger now. They are um, able to choose whether or not they cover their hair in public. Now, there are still restrictions in place. There are still fines and things that are happening, but that... Uh, overall strict nature of the hijab rules have faded away. There's no morality police anymore, nowhere to be seen in public. The regular police are not allowed to confront women about the issue of hijab. So uh, these are all major changes that have taken place after Mahsa's death. And these two women have not witnessed this firsthand because they've been behind bars. So I wanted to know if she was aware of the things that have changed since she's been arrested. And she said, yes, so they are in the loop of what's happening. And she said, um, basically, that um, her sister told me that she's not losing hope 
they will not lose hope. That was the main thing they wanted to convey, is that they will continue to maintain hope. After the break, where all this leaves the public in Iran, where the world's second largest number of executions took place last year. On the Inside Story podcast this week, does artificial intelligence pose the risk of human extinction? Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So, Dorsa, we are talking about the trials of journalists Nilafar Hamadi and Elahi Mohammadi, but they're just two of the thousands of people arrested since the anti-government protests began in September. And the Iranian government has carried out significantly more executions since then as well, including three protesters earlier this month. Is this something that receives coverage in Iran? Does the public react in any way to these sentences? Yes, I mean, as much as they could react, given the environment we're in. No more executions. That's what Iranians are demanding on the streets these days. I think the first one, the first execution of one of the protesters was the most shocking to the general public. Mohsen Shekhari. He was executed on December 8th. Iran says it has executed a prisoner convicted for a crime allegedly committed during the country's ongoing nationwide protest. It's the first such death penalty carried out by Tehran. He was arrested in late September. He was arrested, tried, convicted, conviction upheld in the appeals court and executed all within the span of less than three months. His crime wasn't murder attempted murder. It was waging war against God, which is a crime punishable by death in Iran. I remember waking up on the 8th, and the executions in Iran happened very early in the morning because uh, people get up to pray at dawn, and then they carry out the executions after the early morning prayers. And I remember seeing a video of his mother on the street screaming, upon hearing the news that her son had been executed. According to the laws of Iran, they have to have a last visit, the family, immediate family. They have to be told, your son is going to die tomorrow, he's going to be executed. That did not happen, apparently, in this case, according to the family. There's at least 16 or 17 people that were on death row, that took part in the protests, and seven of them have been executed so far until now. The rate of executions is uh, beyond belief in Iran. In the last year, Iran has had an increase of 75% in executions. Do people feel worn out by this? Do people feel like there really is nowhere else to turn and even protests aren't the answer? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I think the protests really dwindled down as a result of the arrests and the executions, I would say, in January. Until then, there was momentum and there was a sense of uh, desire to go out. Now, uh, after all the arrests and the executions, people are more focused, especially women, on passive protests, meaning they don't wear the headscarf in public. So there's that shift. Earlier you mentioned that you don't see morality police on the streets anymore. Have they been disbanded? Officially, they are on hiatus. 
Iranian state media are denying reports that officials are shutting down the regime's so-called morality police. They won't announce that they've gotten rid of it because that means the people have had some power to change something and that will give them more power to ask for other things. Um, but we didn't see them after Massa's death and we haven't seen them since. Does the fact that it's happened, the fact that you don't see the morality police out, the fact that women are undergoing these passive protests over the headscarf. Is that seen as some real change in Iran following the death of Masa Amini? Yes. Yes, absolutely. I was talking to a friend of mine and she was saying uh, we were standing somewhere and we saw like, you know, a whole bunch of women passing by and none of them were covered. Or you see, you know, a, a woman who's completely covered with the chador, you know, who's walking with a woman who's not covered. It's perfectly okay now. Uh, in, on some level. And she said to me, she said, look, uh, Dorsa, Massa died for this, for what we're seeing right now. And she said, any of us would be willing to be Massa if we knew our death would bring about this kind of change in Iran. Wow, that's incredible. Speaking of Massa, her, her family has attempted to sue the government. What's the state of that case? Well, there's actually two cases that have been brought by her family. Uh, one is against the police department who was in charge of that facility where she was taken and she collapsed. And then the other uh, lawsuit is against the medical association that put out the initial report about the cause of death, claiming Massa had pre-existing health conditions. These two cases have gone absolutely nowhere. And uh, the family has been under tremendous pressure and a, a lot of attacks. And also Massa... Massa's own grave has been attacked in Sakas. We saw recently there was a glass area on her grave with her picture on it, and that was broken and shattered as well. Her family is still trying to hold some entity within the system accountable, but they have not been able to get anywhere with it. Hmm. Of course, we know that Masa Amini is the subject of Nilufar and Ilahi's reporting and photography. And Ilahi and Nilufar's cases have received a lot of international attention. They've been given awards in absentia. Press freedom groups have drawn attention to their cases. But personally for you, Dorsa, you tweeted back in May after the execution of three men linked to the protests. It's very difficult to be a journalist in Iran on any regular day, but even more so on days like today. How do you feel being a reporter in Iran today? Well, it's difficult because you have to walk a very fine line. You're trying to do your job, but there are layers and layers and layers of restrictions that you have to be mindful of. And... uh, You try to present both sides as you would anywhere else in the world. You know, I think it's important to point out Iran is not the only place that has problems. There are problems in every country around the world. Um, There are restrictions in many places for journalists around the world. But I think in Iran, it's a specific kind of restriction that is very subjective half the time. So you don't know. Um, You're constantly attacked from both sides. You're either too anti establishment or you're too pro-establishment. I've been attacked for even wearing the scarf on camera during this time because people say, oh, I'm 
abiding by this rule, nobody should be abiding by this rule. I don't have a choice. If I want to continue working in Iran, I have to wear this headscarf on camera. It is the law. If I don't, I will have my press accreditations taken away and I will not be able to work. So I think it's a fine balance. But since Mahsa's death, it's been a different kind of work because not only do you have to worry about your reporting, but you have to worry about yourself as well as a reporter on top of it. Whereas in the past, it wasn't that. It was just your work you had to worry about. But at the end of the day, we, I try to do my best. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by David Enders, Nagin Oliayi, and Chloe K. Lee, with Khaled Sultan, Miranda Lynn, Ashish Mahotra, Sonia Bagat, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tim St. Clair mixed this episode. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back on Tuesday with our guest host, Kevin Hurton. Tune in.